Good morning. Can you hear me okay? My name is Nate Smith. I serve as the executive pastor here at Trinity. Our lead pastor, Chris, is uh, preaching at one of our sister churches, Church of the Redeemer, this morning. So I have the opportunity to continue us in our series through the book of, of Romans. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 25. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Imagine for a moment this passage as a beautiful garden full of rich uh, sights and scents uh, to be discovered. But in order to enter into that experience, we need to find a path. The path that I will take you uh, into this garden this morning is uh, composed of, of four stepping stones. It's paved with four stepping stones. And these stepping stones are four words. Uh, those are mortification, adoption, glory, and hope. Now, the first of these, uh, mortification, is, is probably the most difficult, uh, maybe the slipperiest of the stepping stones. Um, that word mortification sounds dark and ancient, like something that's pulled uh, right from the Middle Ages. Uh, we hardly ever use that word anymore, except in uh, perhaps the sense of extreme embarrassment. Uh, uh, for example, uh, I can imagine the mortification on his face when Chris finds out that I started my sermon with the word mortification. <laughs> the word mortification, like mortuary or mortician, though, uh, comes from the Latin word for death. And in theological terms, mortification means the act of self-denial or the putting to death of sinful instincts in order to have freedom from sin and to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read that for you one more time. Mortification is the act of self-denial or the putting to death of sinful instincts in order to have freedom from sin to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. As the late theologian J.I. Packer 
uh, put it, the Christian is committed to a lifelong fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mortification is his assault on the second. So when we think about uh, life in the spirit, growing in Christ, sanctification, there are really two aspects. One is, is the fruit of the spirit, which we're mostly familiar with, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But there's another aspect of sanctification that we talk about less often, and that's the mortification of the flesh. Now, the flesh here in this passage is not referring to our physical bodies. Uh, God made our bodies, and then they're intrinsically good. Uh, Our hope is in resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. But what is referred to as the flesh in this passage is that part of us that seeks to meet the needs of our bodies, minds, and spirits in ways that are destructive and self-destructive, that are in opposition to God. As an example, within our brain, uh, there are uh, dopaminergic neural pathways that are called the dopamine reward system. And this is an extremely important system for us to take initiative, to us, for us to learn new things, and for us to form new relationships. Uh, but that system, the dopamine reward system, can be hijacked by certain substances or even by pleasurable experiences to lead us into addiction or into other compulsive behaviors uh, like uh, overeating or compulsive gambling or pornography or even social media. Uh, So something that is good and life-giving that God created, the dopamine reward system, can, by the flesh, be used to actually bring about our destruction. Uh, A few weeks ago, Jordan Warner came and preached to us, and as part of his sermon, he put up a slide about the characteristics of the self-referenced life. Those include uh, fearful, defensive, possessive, protective, manipulative. Uh, That's the life lived according to the flesh. But the flesh is also a cynic. The flesh is that voice in my head that when I hear God's truth, I think, that can't be true. As if... uh, something ceases to be true just because it doesn't fully make sense to me. The flesh is a rebel. It says no one's going to tell me what to do when God tries to show me the path of life. Ultimately, the flesh is self-destructive. It destroys health, it destroys relationships, it destroys trust, and it destroys life. A couple of weeks ago, Chris uh, compared sin in our lives to a squatter. It's there, but it doesn't have a rightful place, and we're not obligated to extend hospitality to the squatter. If sin is a squatter, then the flesh is the squatter's camp. It's the part of our lives, the part of our soul that is hospitable to squatters, that gives them a place. But we're not obligated to live according to the flesh or to offer hospitality to squatters. I'd like to show you a a picture here, a photograph. This very colorful photograph is actually taken with a um, confocal microscope. And these are four cells that are known as neutrophils. For those hematologic purists, they're also called polymorphonuclear leukocytes, or PMNs. And these wonderful cells circulate in our bodies 
and they uh, are they're, they're the first responders to infection and inflammation, and they're essential for us to have a, a healthy and robust immune response. Uh, these cells uh, circulate only for a few hours, though, in our bloodstream, and they live for only a few days, and then they die and others are reborn. There are actually many cells in our bodies that live only a few days. Uh, some live for weeks, some live for months, and there are some that live our entire lives. But the obligation of all healthy cells in our body is to, um, is to die at their proper time. Now, there are some cells in, in our bodies uh, that don't obey the rules. They are in rebellion against the order of the body. We call those cancer cells. And those cells refuse to die at their proper time. And if uh, left to themselves, they'll ultimately destroy the body. These cells must be put to death, otherwise they'll kill the body. Likewise, in our lives, in our souls, uh, there are things which are causing harm to ourselves and to others, and unless they're put to death, they will eventually destroy us. I'd like to take a careful, more careful look at verse 13 of our passage. This is a, a critical verse to talking about mortification or putting to death the deeds of the flesh. In fact, uh, the 17th century English theologian John Owen wrote an entire treatise entitled On the Mortification of Sin in Believers, uh, really centered around this one verse. Uh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, to give maybe an even more strictly literal translation, for if you live according to the flesh, you're fixing to die. <laughs> but if by the Spirit, the practices of the body you put to death, you will live. This uh, verse um, has got lots of rich material in it, but the summary is, is that it points out a way of life that leads to death and a way of death that leads to life. And I'd like to focus you on a key phrase here, by the Spirit. And John Owen would argue that this is the most important part of this verse. Because putting to death the deeds of the body, mortification of the flesh, is not a matter of self-effort. If we try to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the flesh, it's not going to work. The flesh just doesn't want to die. It's possible that for some time we might be able to suppress some of the more visible manifestations of the flesh in our own effort. Uh, but eventually, uh, they'll lead us to pride and self-righteousness, which will leave us even worse off than we began. Our lack of self-efficacy in putting, together, putting to death the deeds of the flesh has been recognized by the addiction recovery community for many, many years. In fact, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous begin with an admission that we're powerless and our lives have become unmanageable. It goes on to say that we have uh, come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity and we've made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. So if this is not a matter of self-effort, what is our responsibility in the mortification of the flesh. Well, we can embody practices and postures that welcome the Holy Spirit in our lives, welcome the work of the Holy Spirit 
in our lives to mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. These include the spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting, like fellowship and solitude. It can also include other practices and postures that lead to restoration of the whole person. I think some of the uh, emerging uh, therapeutic approaches to addiction uh, are informative for us. Uh, some of these are called uh, self-binding strategies, whereby uh, a person uh, intentionally removes themselves from or uh, keeps themselves from settings or situations that are likely to cause them to be tempted. Uh, another approach is so-called hormesis therapy, which involves uh, a measured, careful exposure to manageable levels of stress or discomfort in order to help reset the dopaminergic system uh, in the brain. Um, in the end, though, all these techniques are not going to be effective without a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, they'll just be uh, empty measures. Um, as John Owen puts it, he, the Holy Spirit, only is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without him are as a thing of naught. We are in the scripture invited to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit and not to quench the Spirit. And this is not a spirit of slavery or fear. This is the spirit of adoption. And adoption means a change in identity, a change in who we are. That brings us to our second stepping stone, adoption. Adoption is a beautiful picture of what God does in making us his own, changing us, giving us an identity in Christ. If I were to have to summarize the gospel in one single word, I think I would choose adoption. In this passage, uh, I think Paul is, is referencing specifically the Roman practice of, of taking someone who is uh, not a son, maybe even a slave in the household, and setting that person in the place of a son. And a son, because in that society, in that culture, sons had full rights of inheritance. In fact, the word translated adoption literally means placing in the place or setting in the place of a son. That adoption uh, involves uh, and includes certain rights First is the right to access and intimacy with God. By the spirit of adoption, we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba is an Aramaic word of intimacy. It's the word that Jesus used when calling on his heavenly Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we have the right to call on God, Abba, Father, intimacy, because we are adopted. We are his. We belong to him. Adoption also includes the right of inheritance. Uh, my wife Kim and I have four children. Uh, three of them we adopted in Kenya, and one of them, who was also born in Kenya, we adopted in the United States. Now, the U.S. adoption system and the Kenyan adoption system have many things in common, but there are some things that are different. In our U.S. adoption, they were very concerned uh, with determining whether we were fit parents, uh, whether we had a stable home, and whether we were going to be able to provide for our children. In the Kenyan adoption system, those things are also important, but the final and most important question that we were asked by the Kenyan judge when we, st when we stood before her in family court 
was, will this child be included with equal standing in your will to the other children in your household? In other words, will this child have an inheritance that is equal to your other children? Because adoption also involves the right of inheritance. For us as children of God, we are heirs of God and we're also co-heirs with Christ. And our inheritance is to be glorified together with Christ. That brings us to our third stepping stone on our path, glory. Now glory is another word that we don't use all that often in common daily speech. Glory, glorify, glorification. Those words can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. In this specific uh, context, as it applies to us, it means the ultimate perfection of believers. And Paul compares our future glory with our current state. He says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us or to us. What we're, what's going on now, what we're going through now, it doesn't even belong in the same sentence as the glory that's uh, going to be revealed to us when we're glorified together with Christ. And it's not just about us. This future glory includes all of creation, for all creation eagerly awaits with us. And that's because creation, because of us, has been subjected to futility and is in bondage to corruption. Now, that's a wide-ranging theological uh, uh, premise, but I think we can see it materially in things like climate change or environmental degradation and exploitation. The good news, though, is that all creation will also participate in our glorification. It will be set free from bondage. It will be restored and redeemed. If you're interested in learning more about environmental issues from a, a, a specifically Christian perspective, I'd commend to you the small book um, on care for our common home written by Pope Francis. And I'd like to read a, a very small excerpt of it for you. Eternal life will be a shared experience of awe in which all creature repentantly in which each creature resplendently transfigured will take its rightful place and have something to give those poor men and women who will have been liberated once and for all. May our struggles and our concern for this planet never take away the joy of our hope. That brings us to our final stepping stone, hope. Uh, Katie Wilson gave a, a wonderful sermon on, on hope last month, and uh, it's worth listening to a second time if you have the chance. Um, I'd like to turn your attention, though, for a moment to our communion liturgy, which we're going to enter into shortly. Uh, there's a particular point in our communion service, our communion liturgy, where we together declare uh, the mystery of our faith. And if you remember it, if you can help me out, Christ has died... Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That is our hope. Our hope is in a person. And when we come to communion, we're doing three things. We're remembering, we're looking back to Christ's death on the cross for us to save us from our sins. We're looking at his resurrection. We're celebrating his resurrection life and presence with us now. But we're also looking ahead with hope and with faith 
to his coming again. Our communion participation is a declaration of the gospel. It's a proclamation of our eschatologic hope, our hope in the future, in our eternal inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. And that hope for future glory really should impact how we live today. I, um, I remember uh, distinctly sitting in 11th grade trigonometry class uh, and my teacher uh, said to us, these are the best years of your life. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, uh, what effect she was trying to have on us, but I remember distinctly thinking to myself, God, please let it not be so. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not saying that my high school years were miserable, at least not in an absolute sense. Uh, but I had been working on the assumption on the, on the hope, on the conviction that there was actually going to be life that was better and more meaningful after high school graduation. And I had set my priorities and, and, and ordered my life in such a way. And, and actually, it's turned out that way for me. I'm, I'm thankful. Um, but there were some of my uh, fellow students who clearly seemed to be working on a different assumption that there was nothing meaningful after high school and they, they uh, set their priorities and, and lived their lives or, or lived it up in, in such a way that would reflect uh, that their focus was really only on uh, life at that point. And, and it's possible that some, for some of them those, those high school years were the best years of their life, uh, followed by a, um, a steady decline towards death. Um, now. <laughs> Now, if that describes you, uh, my, my apologies and my condolences. Um, but for us, it shouldn't be like that. Let us not be like those who live as though this life is all there is. Let's not become so focused on our present sufferings that we lose sight of the glory that is to be revealed. Instead, let us with patient endurance eagerly await our eternal inheritance the redemption of our bodies, the hope that for now remains unseen, but is nevertheless very, very real. So we've come to the end of our walk through this garden. And uh, to summarize our little turn on the path, I'd like to summarize it in this way. Our identity as children of God and co-heirs with Christ enables us by the Holy Spirit to live in freedom, to put to death the works of the flesh, and to endure suffering in this life as we patiently await our inheritance and in glory, the renewal and redemption of not just our bodies, but of all creation. Amen. As we prepare ourselves, prepare our hearts for, communi for communion, um, I'd like you to focus your mind on these three phrases from the passage we've just read. Spirit of adoption, the glory that is to be revealed, and the redemption of our bodies. Uh, then let the Holy Spirit direct your thoughts and imagination towards how these can be true in you.